Hello and welcome to the Football Ramble. Davy Moyes has done it again and Fulham can actually score penalties. It's Tuesday the 1st of December. I'm Jules Breach. I'm Luke Moore. And I'm Andy Brassel. We are. I am Jules Breach. You are Luke Moore, and you are Andy Brassel. I like Jules. I like the idea of you referring to yourself. So we are Jules Breach. We are all Jules Jules Breach. We are all here for the football ramble. Uh, two Monday night football matches to talk about in the Premier League last night. Let's start off with Leicester against Fulham. Now this isn't a result I saw coming. Fulham with their first away win of the season, beating Brendan Rodgers, Leicester City. And they scored a penalty. It was all the things that I don't think I expected out of this match. But, I, you know, I thought it was actually really good to see the two players who I think have been criticised quite a bit in the media over the last few weeks, Lookman and Cavallero, both getting on the score sheet last night and uh, a very Scott Par- uh, happy Scott Parker at the end of that one, Luke. Yeah, and I I don't think I've ever been more disappointed to see a penalty scored in my entire life. <laughs> Just because I've got I, I had no I enjoyed the game, but I've got no skin in the game when it comes to Leicester or Fulham. And um one of the subtext, one of the narratives about the Premier League at the moment is the fact that Fulham keep missing penalties, which I personally find with no apology given out to any Fulham fans because it's just that's just football. Uh, it's <laughs> hilarious when they keep missing them. So <laughs> I, I, if I could have picked one thing going into this game that I wanted to see, it would have been a Fulham penalty. And then to see him dispatch it with such a plum, I was just so disappointed. He needs to, <laughs> he needs to play into the narrative and miss another one. It would have been amazing because where would they have turned? And Scott Parker said, obviously, didn't he, that... Um, Oh, during the week he spoke to Cavalera about it, and without hesitation, Cavalera said, "No, no, I'll definitely want to take the next one," uh, and and he put it away. You well. know what I loved about that quote, Luke, is he actually said he looked me dead in the eye <laughs> and said, "I'm going to take the next one," and said, "I've killed before, and I'll kill again. <laughs> I will kill again." What's amazing is that they missed five out of the last eight before that. Does anyone feel like it? It felt like more. Yeah, yeah. But five yeah. five out of eight misses doesn't really seem to do justice. It like we always say on here, it's the manner, not just the result, isn't it? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a kind of exponential exponential kind of culmination when it comes to missed penalties. Like it, it seems like they just get worse and worse the more that you miss them. So that I was um I was disappointed to see it go in with no apology <laughs> to Marcus. He'll probably dig me out about on that about that on Friday. But um, you, you said Jules at the start of this, oh, you know, it's not a result you saw coming. Very difficult. I keep saying this on the show, but I think it remains true. It's very difficult to know what's going to happen. Like yeah, home advantage true. appears to be different this season because of the fact that there's no fans, of course. And we don't know what we're going to get when we go into games. But you know, independently of the stadium, Leicester are objectively a lot better than Fulham. So I, th- I think this is a surprise where wherever it's played, really. Um, but I was really pleased for Adamola Lookman. I mean, people have made an awful song and dance over what at the end of the day is, is just a missed penalty. Obviously, it's it's annoying because, as we said, the the manner and the fact that it, it would have won them a point if it had gone in. But players miss penalties and we have to get over it. Adam Ola Lookman is a young player who's had a really rough trot because um, he worked hard to get that move um, permanent from Everton to Leipzig. And unfortunately for him, the, the coach changed in that time. And when he arrived... Um, Julian Nagelsmann didn't really fancy him. So he never really got the chance the, the second time at, at Leipzig. I wouldn't have looked at this situation and thought Fulham was the, the, the club to revive him by any stretch of the imagination. It, it felt to me like he needed to play and any port in a storm. But um, I'm, I'm glad for him that it seems to be coming together because you know he's, he's a young player who's missed out on a lot of football not really through any fault of his own, but not really through fitness either. So for him to to get a go and to be the centrepiece of a very good counter-attacking performance was pretty nice. I thought. Well, I think, Jules, I know how you feel about it, but I felt like watching the game that um, what seems to typify Fulham so far this season is they're not able to put together a, not a full 90-minute performance. You know, if you yeah. saw them against Everton, they roared back against Everton. It made it really exciting. But they had been actually very poor in other aspects of the game. Yeah, I mean, there's no pressure when you're 3-0 down, is there, really? That's also true. But in this game, actually, they started poorly. They, they weathered the storm. Leicester could have had a couple of goals, and they mm. didn't score. And, and, and yeah, you, they hit a post early on, didn't they? And yeah. the bar, I think. Yeah. And you, and you, and you 
saw Fulham kind of grow into the game. What's key for me as well is that um, they, they've got to, I know he's, he's still working his way back to full fitness. They've got to use Loftus-Cheek. For me, he's, he's, he's look, I, I might, people may disagree on this. I think Harrison Reed is a fine player at what he does and he was obviously outstanding last season. Um, I think Anguise is growing all the time and looks look, looked good last night. But I think that Loftus-Cheek is the most important midfielder they've got. They've got to keep him. He can carry the ball. He can do a bit of everything. He's got he a bit could of elevate class. the team, couldn't he's he? He's got a bit of class as well. And I, I think I know he had to be subbed off yesterday because, as I said, he's coming back to full fitness. For me, he's a key player for them. 100%. And I think that we saw that in when he came on in Fulham's previous game. He completely changed the game yeah. when he came on. He came on as, as a late substitute in that one. And it, they, I mean, I think Fulham were a bit unfortunate in that game not to take anything out of it. Then you see Ruben Loftus-Cheek start this game. And again, he made such a difference. He's he, They've got to keep him fit if he's going to try and keep them up in the Premier League this season, which will, of course, be Fulham's aims this year. And, and I, I agree with Andy as well about, about Lookman. I think he's actually been one of Fulham's better players this season. I think he's been one of the best ones in the team. And I think that since he's started to play a bit more, particularly in the last few weeks, I think he's looked really good. And I think it's a bit of a shame, really, that the Penenka penalty that didn't go in became the sort of talking point. <laughs> yeah, just like you say, because Andy's so balanced and because he's such a, a mild, mad, good-natured man, he says Adamoya Lookman, you know, he's a young player, so he's going to miss penalties. I mean, there's missing penalties and there's that. <laughs> Isn't there? Yeah, I, I didn't say that. I said, you know, it happens rather than he killed a load of people. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> you know, we can't go over the top on it, but it was. But people have gone over the top on I, it. I will continue to go over the top <laughs> on it. No, I just I, think it's a different aspect of it. And, and that he, look, he, he, there are ways to take penalties, aren't there? And the way he took that one was honestly so bad. And I think we should say that. Luke, I would have thought that after Fulham scored a penalty last night, we'd stop talking about Fulham's missed penalties, but you just want to crack on. I'm fuming with him scoring one. I told you, I'm fuming <laughs> about it. I'm absolutely devastated. Also, can we give Adamola Lookman a, a bit of love for the, the tribute to Papa Diop? Yeah, it was very yes. nice. I thought that was, that that was, was lovely. That was nice and important to Fulham fans because he was a good player for them. One of Portsmouth's invincibles as well. And that amazing invincible unbeaten run to the FA Cup in 2000 and, uh, yeah. 2008. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really lovely touch, wasn't it? But um, a really important win for Fulham and Scott Parker's side. They're out of the relegation zone uh, with that one. It's just their second win of the season and their only second win in 26 Premier League away matches. Obviously, that's counting the last time they were in the Premier League. But that'll be good for Fulham to get that off their backs once again. And in terms of in terms of Leicester, I feel like they've been a bit of a... They have started the season well, don't get me wrong. But I do think it's interesting when you look at their results, the fact that at the King Power this season, they've actually struggled to pick up the results that you'd expect them to be getting all three points in. And actually, their more impressive wins have all come away from home. Why do you think that is? Well, they, they kick-started West Ham's season, really, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, they lost 3-0 uh, at home to West Ham. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, at the, the time, that was an absolutely eye-rubbing, unbelievable result. Mm. I mean, we're, we're going to come on to West Ham in a minute, but does this mean uh, Fulham are going to be top five for Christmas? You, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you never know. It could be a kickstart. <laughs> Look, I think, I think Andy alluded to this earlier. If you, if you said to me there's going to be one toothy grid on display after this game, I would have thought it would have been Brendan Rodgers, not Scott Parker's. And Scott Parker took, took some... <laughs> and, and part of the reason that Monday Night Football is so good on Sky Sports is because, you know, Clearly, Carragher and Neville and David Jones as well, I suppose, have such a rapport with existing players and managers within the game. They can ask kind of more cheeky questions, more kind of you know, more pointy questions than perhaps you'd get in your general post-match interview. If you know, if you if you if you watch a Premier League game, and not then, unless you're Des Kelly. Well, well, that's well, exactly. That, that's a kind of <laughs> go on, Des. That's that's that's, that's you know, listen. Some point, every man's got a breaking point, you know. And <laughs> Des Kelly going full on Walter White is 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 to be welcomed. But I loved with, it with Jurgen. But generally speaking, you get those flash interviews at the end. They're normally quite formulaic. But Monday Night Football doing really well because you get you get Carragher and Neville, who I, I feel like can get away with asking kind of you know, some some more interesting questions. They did that with Scott Parker. He had a little wry smile, and it was great. But to go back to the Leicester point, they've definitely got these top performances in their locker. I mean, you know, Andy, you said earlier you, you weren't sure you'd, you'd necessarily agree with this, but but there's on more than one occasion, Leicester have almost flattered to deceive because 
take the West Ham result for example, that followed a massive win against Man City. Like they 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 really set their stall out with a win against Man City. So are we talking about what Jules was talking about in context of them playing at home? Because I, I think King Power actually is is a point is one of the underrated atmospheres in mm, might well in, the, be that, yeah. in, in in the Premier League, and I think for a for a new stadium or a new stadium of that particular era to be that close to the pitch to generate that sort of noise and of course that is something that's augmented through achievements like winning the Premier League and that incredible yeah. run they went on towards the end of the season but, but I don't think it's just the atmosphere of the stadium I actually think what we're seeing is a little bit of um, of, of muscle memory a little bit of almost subconscious application that what the what is expected of a group of players when they're playing at home when, when if you, generally speaking at mm. the top level when you're playing at home you are expected to set the tempo. Now, it might well be that you play a different formation to the other team and you're more defensive than they are, but you set the initiative because you're the home team. Yes. That's what tends to happen. This isn't happening this season because everything feels so different. And I think if you're, if you're not careful, you can get into what Jim used to talk about when he talked about Arsenal. Uh, he may still refer to Arsenal like this, I'm not sure, but you Probably become does. a team where football happens to you. <laughs> you let... Right. Football happens to you a lot more. And it hardly ever happens to a, to a big team at home, unless there are you know, a big team in the Premier League now, really. I mean, uh, is, it is, is happening to them. Is, is that part of it? The fact that now they're at a, a certain level, notwithstanding the flop at the end of last season when they, they let the Champions League play slip away. But the fact is that now they are at that point and they do have those sort of players where there are quite a, a, a generous chunk of games in the Premier League that they're actually expected to win. And that's a different expectation, yeah. isn't it? Against West Ham, against Fulham. Yeah, I, don't, I just, I just don't know if we know what, who, who's actually. It, it, it's very, very difficult to. It sounds like I'm a bit unsure, but it's because I am. It's very difficult to know who's actually good and who isn't. I mean, you, there are six points separating the top eleven teams in the Premier League this season, and we're and yeah, we're ten games bad. in. So I mean, mm. it's difficult to know. We've talked about it, haven't we, already this season? But there's a chance for teams to stamp their authority on the Premier League this season, and no one's really done it. But Leicester, are a team that, when you look at the not just Brendan Rodgers' work there, not just the way they run the club, but the players they have now, you know, with those midfielders, it's, it's like if you turn up to a nightclub in a mink coat, people are going to expect you to be a good dancer. <laughs> The, the fact is, if you're rocking, sorry, Andy, we have Madison, to cross to Jules for that. That's Jules. That's I'm, Jules' expert I'm area. Sorry, Jules. Do not, do not ever turn up in a mink coat on a dance floor. You will sweat the <laughs> night away. <Yeah. laughs> and no I one likes it to go near a sweaty man. Leave it a coat check, Jules. I'm just yeah. talking about the entrance to the club. <laughs> like when Andy, Andy's definitely the kind of guy who would turn up to to a club in a mink coat and then um, accidentally <laughs> yeah. shoot himself in the foot with the uh, revolver he's got on his waistband. <laughs> 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 but Jules, seriously, you are someone who knows your way around a mink coat better than Andy or I. What, how do you how do you feel about that analogy? I can confirm that I do not own a mink coat, so okay. I I cannot compare this analogy in, in, in the literal way that Andy just has. But, but, um, but, but there Jules, we go, listeners. Uh, Jules doesn't own a real mink coat. But Jules, no, Jules Brighton have that gone... sounds like a picture erased to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jules, Jules have gone from a Jules Brighton have gone from a team who you know used to wear a tracksuit to now kind of wearing a mink coat. And <laughs> y you would say that they probably their performances haven't actually been that bad, but they haven't picked up a huge amount of points. Uh, yeah. To me, there's a definite element at the risk of sounding like a cop out because we're doing a football show here and we should talk about football as much as we can. But it's you don't really know what, what stage teams are at. You don't really know. And, and it feels like normally in a season, this kind of stuff would have been shaken out by now. Yeah, We're about a quarter yeah. of the way through the season. The stuff gets shaken out. This is when people start to play their wild card in fantasy football because they know which players are going to have a good season and which aren't. And it's not still actually you, very difficult Not if you're tell. me and it's been so diabolical that you played it about <laughs> six weeks ago. Yeah, I, I, big, <laughs> big charity bet coming to the charity of my choice from you, you, Jules Breach, when I beat you in fantasy football this season. No, absolutely not. There's still time. Marathon, not a sprint, Luke. True, Moore, as true. I said at the start. <laughs> um, let's talk about West Ham Villa last night then because Davy Moyes has done it again. This West Ham team are continuing to surprise me every week. Um, Aston Villa have been really good this season and I think that their performance last night warranted more than zero points. Uh, they should have got something out of the game. Somehow they didn't. West Ham managed to come away with all three points yet again and they're in fifth in the table. I actually had to double take when I saw that. They were actually, they're actually fifth in the Premier League table. Um, it's the first time that David Moyes has been in the top five in the Premier League 
since 2013, November, that was, after Manchester United beat Arsenal that season. So good on him. Let's let's give David Moyes a bit of love. We need to. And I think especially we, we should probably underline the fact that they've played some pretty difficult opponents. Yeah, so very far. much so. Um, yeah. Manchester City, Liverpool away, point at Spurs, uh, who are still the leaders. It's, it's very, very impressive indeed. And I think the credit really does need to go to David Moyes because for a long time, I think we've looked at this West Ham squad and you've thought that there's a there's a lot right in terms of the talent there. But there's been absolutely no faith that they can mould it into a productive, cohesive unit, really. And that's what he's managed to do over the last little while. I mean, he is, without a doubt, the best advert for reassessing whilst working from home that there has been post-pandemic. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a tremendous job that he's done. And when you think um, the despondency that his return was was greeted with, the fact that Manuel Pellegrini has had the ultimate just for men treatment. So he's looking at absolutely terrific at the moment. Has he really? Yeah, yeah. He, he really does look brilliant. Um, Talk us through I, his I look, Andy. You have to what's, give, what's, he, what's he looking like? Um, he's looking like a man that's three years younger than Alan Pardew. <laughs> oh, I, would, okay. I would say. <laughs> but I, I think when you um, look at Moyes, it, it is super impressive because... You know, I, I said on here when um, Ben Rama signed, I thought, oh, that's so disappointing that Ben Rama, a player with such enormous potential, is going to go to West Ham, a club where it's just going to become lost and he isn't going to have a role. Well, you, you, know, you know what? You've, you've got to say at this point, I'm wrong because West Ham are changing perceptions of, of what they can be and, and, and what they can aspire to. Yeah, I, I, I felt exactly the same with the Ben Rama sign. You know, in the summer when... Brentford missed out on getting promotion to the Premier League in the playoffs. And there was all this talk about, right, if they don't go up, they're going to lose all their best players. I did not foresee that Ollie Watkins would go to Villa and Ben Rama would go to West Ham and both teams would be doing as well as they are this yeah. season. There's, there's just absolutely no way. I did not see that coming. And do you know what? It's actually been, it's been a bit disappointing, I think, as a football fan and, and as someone who... I really rate Ben Rama. I think he's such a good player. Last season, what he did in the championship, he was unbelievable to watch. And it's been a bit disappointing that he's not had as much game time as I think maybe we'd have liked to see him have at West Ham. But I think that, again, credit to David Moyes. He's got to kind of gradually bed him into this team and get him fit and get him sort of playing with this squad that he's obviously not had. A, he didn't really have a preseason with them, did he? So um, it's it's going to take a bit of time for him to bed into this team but I think that he's such a good player and what a signing for them I think <clears> that West Ham's recruitment in the last six months since actually it's more than six months now I forget that we're in December boys it's, it's been almost <laughs> a year since the January window when they signed Jared Bowen and that was another brilliant signing for, for West Ham and you can see just how important he's been particularly without Mikel Antonio for the last few games and just how well West Ham have done even without him. And what I think is particularly good, actually, if you look at the work that Moyes is doing, there are players that were considered failures, were considered write-offs that he's worked on. And that is so important. I think you look at the improved performances of Pablo Fornells this season. The fact that Sebastian Aller, with the injury, well, obviously now he's come back, but uh, the injury to Mikel Antonio, he got a little... Um, start in the team and he, he started to contribute as well and West Ham aren't at the sort of level where they can buy a player for 30, 40 million and just write them off if they're a bit crap you know that's not something that they, they can deal with so the fact that Moyes is doing that is something that is, is beneficial for the financial health of the club as well as the, the on-pitch efforts of the club Yeah I think you've got to look at the circumstances that he came to the club as well I mean <clears throat> You know, you know, West Ham would they they have this idea among fans that they want to play football in a certain way. I know that plenty of people are going to get in touch with me, so that's not actually true. Uh, it is true because I used to do a radio show where people used to phone in and text in all the time, and it would always be West Ham fans talking about the type of football they wanted their team to play, and they hadn't played it, and it gave them this kind of alongside the ownership and how the ownership have treated. The, the club, of which I do have a huge amount of sympathy for, it, it created this atmosphere. There was a bit of a disconnect. And what David Moyes has actually been able to do is he's been able to say, do you know what? I don't actually give a shit how you want to play. 
we're going to play this way and this is going to get us success. Mm. And he's been given, I think, a a not a free pass, but a, a, enough latitude for a couple of reasons. One is because he came in before, did an all right job and was moved on. And then whoever came in after him didn't really work out. So he's come back again, you know, and it's almost a bit like, David Brent with Nelson the dog. That's when the begging starts. But he is back in there. And also, he's not had the fans on his back. It was a shit... Yeah. The, 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 the London Stadium's been a shit show for years. It really has. You know, we, have, we have fans protesting in Mark Noble's face on the pitch during games. That's how bad it got. Let's not forget mm. that. So the fans not being there has probably helped a little bit as well, giving them a bit of room to do stuff. And there was also an element of West Ham, and Andy's just touched on it there, but to build on that a little bit further... There was an element of West Ham, they became an almost Newcastle United 2.0, where players would come there on good wages for quite big money and they wouldn't do anything. Their careers would just drop off. Because there was really an atmosphere that didn't stimulate them and didn't encourage exactly. success. And that's, that doesn't necessarily seem to be there now. And what, what David Moyes seems to be able to do as well is being able to say, look, if you're Felipe Anderson, I know he's moved on now, and you're not going to be part of the plans or you're not going to make a contribution, I don't care how much money you cost. Here's the Porto yeah, bench. You, take a seat. You're not going to play. You can be. You can go from being on the bench at Lazio to be on the bench at West Ham to being on the bench at Porto. <laughs> if you're Sebastian Allaire and you come with a big fanfare from a team that scored loads of goals when you signed and you're not scoring, I'm not going to pick you. And he's been given the room to be able to do that. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think we should go over the top here. I, I, I think, you know, we can, we can give David Boyes a bit of credit for those things. And I don't think you guys are wrong. But the last few games, fine, they've stuck in there. And they've narrowly beaten teams like Fulham and Sheffield United. Are they fortunate to win this? I'm going to come on to that. Sheffield United have been awful this season. And, and West Ham kind of snuck past them. Against Aston Villa last night, they weren't that good. Villa were a no, much better weren't. team. Villa should have won that game. I, th I think you've got, a, you've got a little bit of, of result sniffing here and going, oh, well, the, the West Ham won 2-1, so it must have been a great performance. For me, it wasn't a great no, performance. No, it wasn't. There were, there were some poor, poor refereeing decisions. There was a, a missed penalty. There was some difficulty for West Ham, and they rode their luck to quite a large degree. Um, and we'll see how they, they get on in the coming weeks. But look, look, a win is a win, as they say, and fifth doesn't lie. They're in fifth on the table. Good for them. Last night, I thought they were fairly poor, though. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you there, Luke. And I, but I think at the same time, when you're able to get three points out of matches when you play pretty badly, yeah, that's still a good sign of a team that are, that are going in the right direction because they somehow managed to to pick up points. But Jules, that's one they... way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that you know, like Haley's comet, something comes along every so often, which is like quite surprising. And Ollie yeah. Watkins missing a penalty and having a goal disallowed when he should have had another penalty. And, you know, they're having a number, number of other chances. I think they had three times the amount of shots that West Ham had. They had double the possession. They had loads more uh, of the ball, obviously, because that's, that's double the possession. And, and they were a better team. <laughs> and it just didn't work out for them. I don't think there was some kind of perfect game plan where you know, no, West Ham made their luck. You do currently sound like an angrier version of Dean Smith. I always sound angry. It's kind of it's just a hand I've been dealt. I think people always expect me to be angry. Dean, Dean Smith was actually quite sanguine about it, wasn't he? he I was mean, really, he was, he was really he's annoyed with the referee, but he was kind of pretty good, upbeat about it in the in the post match. Well, look, it's an it's annoying that we have to talk about VAR again. Um, but this is a football podcast, and what's everyone talking about yeah. right now in the world yeah. of football? Yeah, VAR. Um, look, what what do we think about it? I thought that last night. Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville on Monday Night Football on Sky were brilliant. It was such good telly to watch. Mm. Just from, from a spectator's point of view, it was entertaining but also informative. But they also both made some really good points and they had contrasting views on it. And I wonder whether you both have different views to each other or are we all in agreement with how we're feeling about VAR right now? Andy, I'll let you go first. It's, it's a tricky one because I think when we're talking about this particular thing um obviously there's been a lot of talk about how uh, the Eredivisie has, has has gone rogue and um adopted thicker lines very much in the in, in the style mm. of a Gallagher brother and sort of <laughs> allowed a, a margin of error uh, really a a, a a sort of um corridor of uncertainty I guess to use a cricket term um in in terms of offside um I, I've yeah, I, I, I find it. I find it quite frustrating. I always found it quite frustrating. I was never in favour of VAR in the first place, but taking aside this particular decision, what saddens me the most really is the fact that we, the English, have become a nation of 
referee moaners. Uh, and and that is something that I never really thought would happen to the extent that it has. I mean, I remember going over to like staying for extended periods in Portugal and working in Portugal, and um, they, they they had a paper, uh, a, one, a couple of the main sports papers over there. They used to have a page on about page five where they'd examine the five major decisions from each big game, and they'd have a panel of you know ex player, ex referee, ex coach. I think this is the saddest thing ever. This, you know, sort of jukebox jury on every single decision. But we've become like that. And we've spent a lot of time arguing about stuff that actually is technically right. We've got to ask ourselves what we want. It, it turns out that it's not accuracy. You know, the accuracy and preciseness is not the reason that people, not just in this country, but all over the world, Love the Premier League. So I guess we've got to ask ourselves, what have we what have we even wanted from VAR? I mean, this is a separate case because this is a manifest error and I've no idea how you can look at this for such a long period of time. The Ollie Watkins still, goal. Yeah, and still get it wrong. Well, I, th- I think there's a long... Look, let's, not, let's not spend all day on this because as you said, Jules, you know, it's, it's, it's tedious and I, I wasn't in favour of VAR before it came in either. Um, but I think... You've got to look at how it was sold in to, to football fans and why they're so angry about it. Um, it was sold in as like, you know, you're never going to have to worry about this type of stuff anymore and it's going to do this, it's going to do that and it's going to be great. And it isn't great. It's, you know, if it, there's, there's a load of different inputs here. One is that how the laws of the game are written up. One is how the VAR is implemented. The other one is the general standard the referee in. Yeah, you're now seeing players coming in and, and undermining it by talking about it on social media and how unhappy they are with it. Not all players, but but some. So the, 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 the key issue, if we're going to take it outside of the whole Ollie Watkins thing last night, where if the referee can't see that as a foul, he shouldn't be refereeing at the top level. Simple as that. I don't want to jump on the back of someone who's doing a hard job, but there's a minimum standard expected. You know, if you can't see that, whatever the process is, wh- whether you feel undermined or not, yeah, that's part of the process, of course. I think I think that's 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 a very fair point. If you can't the refer- fact is that the general standard of officiating has been poor this season. Yeah. But the overarching point is this: um, is just that the laws of the game were not drawn up to take into account this type of technology. And until they're completely changed, and until they're drawn up differently to allow for this, you're going to have this forever. It's never going to end. And part of the reason people are moaning about it is because there is no end to this insight. It's not going to get any better because people are too stubborn at the top level and at the administration level to change their minds on things. And because really, in society generally, once technology is out of the bottle, you can't put it back in again. But, but there, there, there is definitely less moaning about this in other European countries. Yeah, British people like to moan about shit anyway. It's just how it is. People like that moan, <laughs> moan about that all the time. It's, it, it, they're not going to moan about that. They're moaning about St. Kells. That's, that's, that's kind of by the by, really, Andy, because people just moan anyway. They've, they've transposed their moaning from refereeing generally to VAR. I don't think there's more moaning generally. I just think there's more moaning about this subject when it was mm, about a yeah, different subject maybe. before. So, look, it's never going to be changed, but it needs to accommodate it needs to be accommodated by the laws of the game being written up in a different way that, and, and that's and that's not going to happen so it's almost pointless me saying it Jules uh, Luke do you reckon you're king of the moaners at Football Ramble yeah and, and this, this is the thing that pisses me <laughs> off Jules right Andy Brass will come into the studio and he knows loads more about me than football and that's fine I'll let him get on with it I'll sometimes question him I'll get put in my box and that's fine and the <laughs> listeners love to hear it when he comes in here and starts thinking he knows more about moaning than me that's where I draw the line that's it's where it's, I draw the line it's not about that it's about triggering you by being reasonable it's what <laughs> yeah, I live for yeah, it's what exactly. I live for exactly <laughs> Oh, love a Luke Moore trigger. Yeah. All right, on that note, let's take a break. Welcome back, Ramblers. It's now time for this. Just email show at footballramble.com Right now. Make sure you get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. Email show at footballramble.com or tweet us at footballramble. And a few of you have been in touch on music that teams come out to at football stadiums, Luke. Yes, this email here from Robert Wildy. Hello to you, Robert. He says, my club, Birmingham City, have entered the pitch to an instrumental version of Feel It by the Tampera since the early 90s. Do you remember that tune? Can you feel it? It's like a remake yeah, of yeah, um, the Jackson yes. 5, right? 
Yeah, uh, is it yeah. Jackson Five? I think it is. Um, anyway. That one, yeah? What's she gonna look like with a chimney on her? That one, right? Yeah, I, I know. I, I knew right at the beginning before you started doing any <laughs> of that. I was just checking for myself. Just checking <laughs> just for myself. Anyway, I'll hand it back to Robert, who said a few years back, in an audacious <laughs> attempt to enhance the match day experience, the club changed the music to Viva La Vida by Coldplay. As, oh, the, no. as the players were appearing from the tunnel, the first line of the song belted out, I used to rule the world. Uh, this is a club which has won only two major trophies in 145 <laughs> years. I stood around hearing genuine laughter from the stands. Needless to say, it was scrapped and the tamperer was back for the next home game because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Thank you very much Brilliant. for that, Robert. Um, Callum Yates has also uh, been in touch saying, all right, gang, after Jose Mourinho's Famous run-in with team doctor Ava Carnero at Chelsea. The next game after the whole torrid affair was away at the mighty Man City. In an expert act of trolling that even PTD would have been proud of, both teams walked out to the Doctor Who theme tune. Shame oh. we didn't have Josie on Instagram at that point. I can only imagine the response. I didn't know that. It's very good, actually. Thank you good. for yeah, that, uh, Callum. That. Uh, we've got one here from uh, Phil Brown. Not that Phil Brown. Might be that Phil Brown. Imagine if it was. Email it in. I would love to think it was that Phil from Brown. His, from his Bluetooth, from his Blackberry. <laughs> Definitely a Blackberry. <laughs> from his halftime BBM team BBM Messenger. Yeah. Uh, hello, Ramble. I've been a listener for years and always plan to send this story. Now is the time. In 1999, the French national team came to Windsor Park to play Northern Ireland in a friendly. They did an open training session the day before the match, and me, my brother, and my dad went down to watch. I was nine years old at the time. A group of kids were able to line up at the entrance for the French team to run past us as they entered the playing field. Patrick Vieira winked at me. This was going to be a good day. During the <laughs> training session, there was a group of young lads hiding in the forest behind the net, probably to steal balls. That's what I would have done. Um, any time a ball went in there it was gone forever there you go <laughs> at the end of the training session we were all allowed to go and get autographs and meet the players all of the kids seemed to have um, paper books to get signed while I'd brought a mini France World Cup 98 football the kids swarmed the players and it was hard to get close for an autograph especially as for someone with a football when all the players only seemed to have biros after about half an hour, my brother got all the players to sign his World Cup sticker book. I had a one centimetre line in biro drawn on my football by Marcel, Marcel Desai. <laughs> a combination Aww. of shyness, being younger than most of the kids and having an awkward object to sign. None of the players signed my ball. At the end, oh, we ran over him. to my dad at the side of the pitch and he asked us how we got on. My brother was over the moon with his book. <laughs> I was gutted with my Desai line and started to cry. <laughs> After working out what had happened, my dad walked through a barricade and walked right onto the French Wearing bus. Wearing a mink coat. Walked right onto yeah, the French bus. Yeah, he's got bus, a mink coat on. Which was about to leave. Security must have been very lax back then, especially for Belfast. He tells me that he went on and shouted at the players something like, my kid is out there crying because none of you would sign his ball. <laughs> <laughs> he came out of the bus and had been given the details of their hotel and password to give at reception to get into the players' area. The next day, the morning of the match, we went to the hotel and met all the players with a printed A4 page with a photo of them lifted the World Cup for them all to sign. I remember my dad talking to Bartes the whole time we were there. Wonder what that was about. Anyway, we went to the match and France won 1-0. Thanks, Dad. What an amazing dad story. And, of course, he did oh, make it away with, so I think, great. probably five training footballs. Yeah, so, brilliant. Um, yeah, Jules, have you, ever, have you ever asked a football player for an autograph? Um, no, I haven't actually. Too professional. No, I haven't actually asked a footballer for an autograph. Lots of selfies, obviously, yeah. photographs and stuff. But of course. Not, not. I, I remember when I went to um, Disney World though, when I was about eight, I took a little autograph book and I got Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse to sign it, and I've still got it. That is textbook. It That's must. What everyone it, does. it must be really hard to do the signing while you're wearing one of the suits. Yeah, my sister used to be a uh, couple of characters at Disneyland Paris. <laughs> no, she used to be. Uh, please tell me more. She used to be Buzz Lightyear, and uh, she, I think she was also Pluto. Really? Oh, what was I love what was her favourite one to play? I think I don't think I don't think they like being in the big suits because it's really hot. I think. But my sister was also I think she was Maleficent at the uh, parade as well. So like that was Luke, a bit easier. This is you genius. A costume on. I know did, it's amazing. Did she, have, did she get to keep the costumes? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to think about how to answer this. She may <laughs> still have some parts of the costume in her house. Yeah. Yes. One of one of my friends accidentally swore at Prince Philip when <laughs> it, 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 it was, <laughs> he was dressed what? as a crow. Um, what? <laughs> 
It was, well, it was, he was or Prince Philip was. It was, it was the opening <laughs> is to... It, is it in the crown? It, yeah. <laughs> it was the opening to the oh Doctrine's Light God. Railway. And my friend, who's a teenager at the time, was en- enlisted to help with this. Now, I think the mascot uh, of the Doctrine's Light Railway was a crow at the time. He's quite a mobile <laughs> sort of bird that gets around the inner city. Anyway, um, someone come up to him. It, it was a really hot day. It was the middle of summer. You can't really see out of those suits that well. And so someone came up to him and goes, is it hot in there? And he's like, what do you fucking think, mate? And then anyway, <laughs> people, people came up to him afterwards and said, oh, you spoke to Prince Philip. And he's like, oh, shit. That's fair but enough. I think Prince Philip, foot, normally he's being rude to yeah, other people. Prince Philip would have respected that. I think he would have. Yeah. I think you're right. Absolutely. I, um, I really hope that is featured in one of the episodes in The Crown I think soon. It, I think it should be. That's a, it's a <laughs> massive oversight by the, uh, by the writers of it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you so much again for your emails. Those were brilliant today. Uh, show at footballramble.com to get any others into us. Um, let's move on to a bit of good news, guys, um, about Raul Jimenez. We all saw that really horrible-looking injury on Sunday night's match against Arsenal, him and David Luiz um, clashing heads, and he was stretched off. He was um, treated at the side of the pitch and then taken to hospital. The news yesterday was that he was responding well and um, and was aware of his surroundings, which was good news. And then today he has put out a statement to say that um, he's recovering well in hospital. He's had surgery to his fractured skull and that hopefully he'll be back onto the pitch soon, which is what we all want to hear. And hopefully... Um, it'll be a speedy recovery from now on in for Raul Jimenez. Good news to hear that, Luke, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, it was anyone who watched that game, as the guys touched on yesterday, it was a horrible, horrible thing to see. And, and you know, we've seen a couple of similar incidents in the past. Thankfully, they're rare, but we've seen Ryan Mason obviously suffer something similar. And we've seen Peter Cech as well before, before that. Look, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on this around um, concussion protocols and concussion substitutes and, and all that type of stuff. And I do think, actually, there's no real reason why football is lagging so far behind other less popular sports. Let's get that right. When it comes to concussion substitutions, concussion protocols, to me, the, the concussion substitute rule is is a no-brainer that can be brought in whenever you want. Uh, there's no reason you can't do it. Like yeah. I, I don't, I, I just don't see why does there need to be a trial period? Yeah, just yeah, I know I exactly. What, what are you trying? Well, 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 there's yeah. nothing to trial. Yeah, I know. I think Alan Shearer's made that point, hasn't he? But, look, but the, the, the point is, I mean, you know, look. Aside from the fact of me using no-brainer as an, an unintended pun, um, I, I, I just think that that football sometimes ties itself up in knots with its own. Um, it's just its own con- conceitedness. Like it's it's so conceited that it thinks everything everything in football is so important, which of course it is uh, to an extent. But it thinks that it has to run trial periods and have a five million people having a vote on something before it does something, which is, ob- which is obviously just so sensible that it's already been effectively trialed in loads of other sports, most of which are quite similar, and it can happen straight away. There's no reason you can't do it. As time goes by and we become armed with more knowledge, better research. I think looking into the effects of not just heading, but in this case, headed challenges. And that's when, you know, we've had all the the, the, the talk recently. And of course, Chris Sutton has, has done loads of great work on it. It's, it's something that affects him very personally about um, instances of, of Alzheimer's, for, uh, potentially from um, repeated heading of the ball. It's not just the, the the heading of the ball, is it? It's the 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 sort of challenges that it encourages. Um, yeah. So I I don't think being afraid that the game will change is an excuse to shy away from that discussion. It never should be. But w- when we go back to the Raúl Jiménez um, discussion, of course it's, it's it's not about him in this case and and the effects of concussion. It's about David Luiz and yeah, for, for, yeah. for Arteta, a coach who. Um, is someone who I know is is, is very concerned about the the um, physical and um, emotional well being of his players. Someone who's erudite, smart. For him to come out and say after that, "Oh well, um, he wasn't knocked out." I mean, yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, that, we we know that that's only in small amount of cases that that's. Uh, maybe an obvious indicator of concussion, but you can be concussed without being knocked out. I think 90% of ca- cases of concussion, the person isn't knocked out. So yeah. I, I just feel within the game, 
maybe there's other pressures. I mean, we had the the, the Troy Deeney thing um, where, where, where we he, he talked yesterday, and you know, it, it's, it's his opinion. I I I don't want to get stuck into him, but the, the idea, and I understand what he's talking about about a, an element of trust between player and doctor. In almost every other situation, I think that's fine. But when that player's just been hit on the head, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about the difference between sober discussion between player and doctor and under pressure discussion when the player is under no sort of conditions to, to, to make any sort of decision. And it, it should be taken out of their hands. And I don't think it has anything to do with... I mean, he, he talked about, didn't he, um, uh, things being taken away from the players. In this case, it's something that needs to be taken away from the players. They need to be protected. It's not about something being taken away from them. It's about an extra layer of security being added to them. And the clubs, the league, they have a duty of care. Yeah, and, and I, I think... Uh, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think that you, clearly as much research as possible is, is needed to be to be made into the the idea that if you play a competitive sport, in this case football, which involves even in and when Alan Shearer did that documentary, it wasn't even just the you know the the type of challenges that heading kind of introduces to the game. It was also that several hundred or thousand small impacts to your head from heading a football in training every day mm. can latest research seems to suggest can have a cumulative effect. And yeah, there's this idea that, you know, old pumped up balls in the old days um, was was super hard and now it's not so much of a risk. That has been proved to be nonsense. It's about it's about the motion and the impact as as, as well, of course, because like, it's, it's like if you drop 5p off the top of an, the Empire State Building. You know, you know it's, it's it's like that, isn't it? It's not about just the hardness of the ball. No, and and but 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 what I'm getting at in the first point I made is just that people need to have as much information as they can and people need to understand that there's a risk factor involved in playing sport. Now, does the sport itself have a responsibility to limit the amount of risk that they're exposing their players to? I would argue, yes, they do. And they also have a responsibility to give the information to the players. That's it, isn't it? So That's they can, the key. So they, can yeah. make a, yeah. so they can make the decisions they need to make. Because, look, people will talk about banning boxing. You know, I'm not in favour of that because I think if an adult wants to go and box... You know, I, I'm in favour of them being able to do that. You know, it's their own choice to do it. Um, the sport needs to have a responsibility for safety, and and, and they're working hard at making that better all the time. Um, it's to me, it's the same across all sports. If you if you're a kid, you you sign your first professional contract. Maybe there needs to be some information, the latest presented information that says if you engage in this sport every day for the next however many years, you are going to expose yourself to a percentage more risk in later life. The statistics of players playing in the 60s. Uh, and and how many of them develop Alzheimer's dementia in old age? It's through the roof. It's 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 many many yes. times the average. If players are given that information, they can at least make their own decision on it. I mean, Jules, uh, you work closely with Chris Sutton, so you've um, been there while he's he's done a lot of his campaigning and spoke very eloquently on it. We've heard Alan Shearer come out about it. I mean, do you feel like I do that? There's a distinct divide maybe not just in understanding, but in will to understand of players who are currently playing the game and players who have hung their boots up? I think that, um, first of all, on Chris Sutton's campaigning, we've seen that, particularly in the last few weeks, just before the last international break, he um, campaigned very passionately on BT Sports Score and had, I'm not going to lie, everyone in the studio had a tear in their eye. There wasn't a dry yeah. eye in that studio because the words he said about his father, who is suffering from dementia at the moment, um, were really, really emotional. And it was it was very hard to listen to. And when you hear a personal story like that, and I think the point Chris makes with the issue of heading a ball in football um, and particularly trying to limit this for children in the game. When he talks about that link to potential illnesses later on in life, such as Alzheimer's or dementia, and he talks about the effect that it doesn't just have on that player. It's not just them. It's about their family. It's about the fact that they have to care for that person. They have to go through all of that with that person. That's all part of it as well. And I think that I don't think that there is a single person who doesn't want to protect football players. I think if we had the choice and there could be something we could do, surely that is 
the right thing to do if we can protect players. And this kind of conversation about the long-term impact of head injuries, it's going to be an ongoing conversation until something is done about it. And I know that watching the game on Sunday, I was working on the match for the Premier League and I was sat there with Paul Lentz and Ian Wright watching the game. And when David Luiz came back onto the pitch, all three of us felt quite uncomfortable about it. Yeah. We all kind of looked at each other and were like, <clears throat> why is he coming back on here? Yeah. Now, Arsenal, Arsenal's statement about it is that they did all the relevant checks and the doctors said he was cleared to go back onto the pitch. And we can't argue with that. We can't. But what we can say as human beings who are football fans and former players who sit there and watch this, if you feel uncomfortable about that player carrying on, then that can't be right. And surely something has to be done about this. I think that the simplest solution in terms of any on-field injuries, this is nothing to do with the campaigning about long-term um, injuries uh, of yeah. heading a football, which I think is a separate discussion. But in terms of the concussion issue, I think that the simplest solution is to enforce a concussion substitute and that that person should be allowed to come onto the pitch, whether it takes 10 minutes to check a, check a player over and make sure the relevant checks are done. And that substitute is on the pitch for that 10 minutes. And then they can be taken off and the other player be put back onto the pitch. If they are fully cleared of all the medical checks, then why can't that just be implemented straight away? I'm, I'm with Andy went with what he said right at the start there. Why does there need to be a testing period? There was a there was a really good article in The Athletic about concussion. And the headline of it is, how many warnings does football need? And I think that that's a really key question. What is it going to take for football to make a decision on this? Because as you pointed out, Luke, the Ryan Mason story a few years ago was heartbreaking. And, and that's a player who's had to actually hang up his boots because of a head injury. Mm. So surely more needs to be done in this area and hopefully some action will be taken. All right, let's move on from that now and uh, we'll end the show with um, a bit of magic of the FA Cup. Who thought we'd be saying that, eh? <laughs> um, the third round draw happened last night and you know what? I think this is one of the best draws we've seen in the third round for, for a good few seasons and part of that is down to the fact that there are four non-league teams left in the draw um, and the lowest ranked side left in the FA Cup this season, Marine, who have already won seven matches to get to this stage, by the way, seven games they've had to win to get to the third round. And they have got the leaders of the Premier League in the third round, Tottenham Hotspur, which I just, that is exactly what you want to see when the draw comes out, isn't it, Andy? It's amazing. I, 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 I love it. I only hope that they're going to be um, in a position where it's, it's safe enough to allow fans in because um, yeah. you're right, Jules, you know, it's um, a brilliant FA Cup draw, but it will be a brilliant FA Cup draw if fans can safely come in stadiums because for for me, the, of, of all the football that really suffers from not having fans in, the, the FA Cup is absolutely top of that list. I, I think you look at um, the Copa del Rey final at the, the end of last season, which is still not being played. And so at the moment in Spain, you have adverts for coverage of the 2021 season, Copa del Rey, when they've not yet played the final of um, <laughs> 1920. And uh, the two um, Basque rivals who got to the final, Athletic Bilbao and uh, Real Sociedad, both clubs agreed that we don't want to play the cup final without fans in the stadium. It's just not right. Mm. It's just not suitable. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. The, the, the fans in the stadium make these moments. And especially you think of a, a team like Marine hosting, you know, that takes it onto another level. That's what makes the FA Cup so, so special. Yeah. And I think um, yeah. the manager, Neil Young, as the guy said yesterday, not that one, as, uh, as, as said that the, have we clarified it's not yeah, that one yeah, the, yeah, the boys did yesterday but I don't know yeah I'm pretty sure um, I think we should have to say that every time we say his name from now yeah, on yeah I don't think the actual Neil Young gives, gives many interviews <laughs> let alone ones about um, <laughs> about the third round of the FA Cup but he said the, the manager of Marine said oh we can get about 1600 fans in under the current restrictions in theory mm. so if we can play at home we can have um, it was great because he said we can have 1,600 under current restrictions, but um, there's houses on one side so people can watch from bedroom windows and there'll be people in trees <laughs> as well. So we might get up to just under 2,000, he said. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely so, love um, that. It, I, I completely agree with Andy. I think, you know, 
if there's one aspect of football that will suffer more than any other when it comes to a lack of fans, it's the FA Cup. For me, the third mm. round of the FA Cup is the best weekend of the domestic season. I love watching so it good. for so many mm. reasons. And you can't ask for more than the lowest ranked team in the draw to get the, t- the team at the top of the Premier League. Um, it will be horrendous if there's no fans in there. Um, so mm. fingers crossed by then we can we can actually see some, some fans going in there to, to, to witness what will be a pretty historic day uh, yeah. against against Spurs. Either, either way, yeah. chaps, I don't really think we're in a position where we can allow Greg Wallace to be eating the few fans. Oh, that my they God. Are. That, that was can Ke- I just that, say? That was Kerry Marklow from this country as well, wasn't it? Yeah. It, and that's kind of gone under the road. I don't know what that meant. Jules, did, did I miss something with that? what that was all about, that advert? What? What? The Greg Wallace one? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. I just assumed because MasterChef's on BBC, they just thought, we'll use Greg Wallace. I would have loved to be in that meeting where, where they were like, so, um, what should we do about this new <laughs> FA Cup advert? I know. Should we have a giant Greg Wallace spooning some yeah. Swindon fans out of the stadium and putting them into his mouth? And, and, them, just, and, them, going, and them going, yeah, all right. Yeah. I like the sound of that. Don't, no, don't, don't, just to clarify, that. Greg Wallace has not been spooning Swindon fans. <laughs> And they'll be like, you don't need to check with Greg. He'll do anything. Don't worry about it. He'll, he'll sign up for that now. Don't worry about it. Yeah, mad. Absolutely I'm, mad. I, I love it. I'm the biggest MasterChef fan, so I'm Same. all for a giant Greg Wallace spooning something um, into his mouth and going, mmm, yummy. Can I also just say that um, Portsmouth, my team, got the worst draw possible because the last <laughs> thing you want is to be away from home against a team who are obviously better than you, but not so much better than you that it's going to be on TV and you might better cause an upset. So away no, to Bristol City no is glamour. the worst draw you could get. No glamour, uh, no chance. No, exactly. You know, no yeah. glamour, no you know, chance. Do you know where your tie will be, Luke? Um, I don't actually know. I, I, it'll be it'll be three o'clock, BT Sports score on that weekend, well, least, so you can tune in. At least I'll have a good friend of mine covering it, won't I? <laughs> yeah, and you'll be doing it as well, Jules, so that'll be good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Brighton have got Newport County, the Ben White Derby. It's going to be a good one. Very nice. Looking forward w- to it. Wimbledon would have got um, Bielsa if, if that would uh, have rolled over Crawley. No, it Shoulda, woulda, coulda, Andy, hey? Shoulda, woulda, coulda. All right, I think that's uh, about all from us lot today, except that, Luke, you've just got one last oh, yeah. little message. Before we go, um, if you're enjoying the show at the moment, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I know I've asked you a few times already, and if you've already done it, I thank you very much for that. But if you haven't, it doesn't take you very long, and it's very, very helpful for us and for the team here. Um, we've had a review already recently, which simply reads, I'm not sure why Luke Moore gets so much grief from listeners. He's one of my <laughs> favourites, and definitely in the top eight of Ramble Presenters. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much for that. Um, be like be like that review if you want. By all means, uh, get to the review section of Apple Podcasts um, and give us five stars. It'll mean a lot to us and help other listeners find the show. It's also a great testament to all the hard work that goes on behind the scenes from the gang. It's not just about uh, people like Jules, Andy and me, the Glory Hunters. It's about a lot, a lot of other people as well. So it'd be super helpful. Thank you. Yes, please make sure you do that. Um, thanks, boys. Andy, Luke, good to see you as always. Say goodbye. 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 Bye. See you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, you've got Kate Vish and Jim here. They'll be talking all about tonight's Champions League games. See ya. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.